All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. We're going to be in Acts 16 today, and then I have some other material as we get time that I want to deal with. Sunday school is our um, opportunity to talk over current issues that are facing us in the world as Christians in the era that we're living in. So let's, uh, let me read the text of the first two verses we're going to cover and then pray. Acts 16, 4 and 5. Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing daily in number. Strengthened in the faith and increasing daily in number. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness and the opportunity for us to study the book of Acts together and other scriptures. May we learn and grow and be bold in the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we covered the Jerusalem Council. The dispute was concerning whether Gentile believers were going to be required to be circumcised and keep the whole law of Moses. Okay? And several people spoke at that council, apostles, others, and the determination was that that would not be the case. They would abstain from basically what I call temple paganism, fornication, idolatry, and then uh, eating blood, which would have been a bridge too far for any Jews. And then, because not only was it forbidden under the Mosaic Covenant, it was forbidden even when God spoke to Noah after the flood. So that has a real long and deep um, history of being important, not eating blood. So Paul now is headed back to the area where churches had been formed and going through those cities where he had previously preached, was delivering those decisions to the different Christians in these churches. They're called decrees. Decrees. And the uh, literal, I was looking at it in the Greek, it was kind of interesting. It literally says, guard the dogma. Guard the dog, dogma. Paradidomi autos philoso ha dogma, which is where we get our word dogma. The teaching, the decrees. And so, watching over, delivering literally means watching over, that's paradidomi. And so, they were making sure that apostolic truth that was given by God was kept and delivered to the churches. Now, I thought it was interesting that it has the word dogma in the Greek. We got to be careful that whatever we are dogmatic about 
is, is directly derived from the Bible. Because there's a temptation to be dogmatic about things that are not biblical. The, the Judaizers were as dogmatic as anybody in deciding that if the uh, Gentile converts weren't converts weren't um, circumcised and commanded to keep the law of Moses, they'd have no fellowship with them. Now they managed to avert that at the Jerusalem Council, but as I've been telling you, it doesn't really go away. It was so deep-seated that after Paul's second missionary journey, which is beginning now, he ends up coming back through. He comes through Ephesus on the way back, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. Abbas, uh, who's the prophet there? Come on, Bob. Agabus. Agabus. Somehow my mind was going abacus. Um, Agabus had this famous prophecy about what would happen to Paul uh, when he got there, if he went. But he wouldn't be dissuaded. He was going to go back to Jerusalem. And the point of the trip to Jerusalem was to make sure the church did not divide into two segments. A Jewish segment that kept the law of Moses and a Gentile one that did not. The point of the Jerusalem Council was to make sure that didn't happen, to come to an agreement. But yet, by the time Paul gets back to Jerusalem, it all boiled over. And just so you know, all of the tumult, the riots, getting called before civil authorities was instigated by Christians who were Jewish and were angry about what was going on and didn't like the idea that Gentiles were coming into the church and receiving the free gift of salvation, the joy of the Holy Spirit, and full fellowship without going through obedience to Moses. And that all boiled over. You can read about that in Acts 21, which is... By the way, a pivotal chapter. Yes. Here, come over here and then turn it on. If you turn it on, I'll turn it up. I think we'll have sound. Just to play devil's advocate here, Bob, on these decrees, an objection that I've heard is, well, it's a bunch of guys had to get together, a bunch of men had to get together uh, at the Jerusalem uh, Council to come up with these decrees. So when they say that the Bible is not really uh, from God, they, they, this is an objection that they would use. How okay. would you answer that? I'll answer it. Uh, a couple of different things. One, these, there were apostles there who were part of the process, and they were appointed by Christ. Paul as one born out of time. Number two, I would point to this. Jesus Christ himself in Mark 7 declared all foods clean, according to Mark. All right? And so the idea that they're going by what Jesus declared is certainly not 
going off the reservation or whatever. This is the way it is because it's what was taught by Christ and his apostles. Now, this one didn't go away easily. The whole book of Galatians shows how this all boiled over again and how even Peter got caught up in hypocrisy and didn't want to eat with the Gentiles. I mean, he didn't want to eat. He ate with the Gentiles when nobody was looking, but when the Jews saw him, then he didn't want to do it. And Paul confronted him. And there was also a dispute about circumcision. Now, to be totally honest with this, the Jews had paid a huge price to carry forward the promises of God. They go all the way back. Actually, they go to the garden, but for sure go back to Abram in Genesis 12. And the fact that they were the recipients of the Messianic promises had caused them to be persecuted throughout their entire existence. And they were persecuted for being a distinct people with their eccentricities. Now, it was very difficult for them to see Gentiles who had gone through none of that and had just gone their merry way serving paganism, receive a free gift of messianic salvation and come in and they have all the benefits and privileges and they didn't pay anything for it. They didn't pay the price. So that was not easy. But to that, we must say that we cannot ever drop the ball on the issue of salvation by faith alone. Salvation is a gift. Okay? And if you go back, and we may do that today, if you go back to Genesis 12, it wasn't like Abram was looking for a religion. God took the initiative from the very beginning. Abram was there in Ur of the Chaldees and God appeared to him tangibly and called him to leave his family and his people. So God took the initiative. The same with Noah. God took the initiative and appeared to Noah. So we should remember that this is all God's doing. In every case, salvation is a free gift. So trying to make life miserable for some other believers because we don't like what we had to go through is really not a godly motivation. Does that make sense? But that underlies a lot of what is happening in Acts. So as I say on my slide here, the Greek says they were watching over the dogma of the apostles and elders. And I also have a note here that I wanted to make sure I told you about as I was contemplating this. And and I say this. Notice that dealing with doctrinal issues did not harm the church but caused benefit and growth. See that? They were strengthened in the faith and increasing in number. 
then I want to go out and say this is a counter to the church growth theory that lays aside controversial issues and focuses on other things that are not doctrinal. So the church growth gurus say, don't teach doctrine in the church because it'll hinder the growth of the church. And that any survey that's done uh, of various neighborhoods where you might start a church, you will not find potential religious consumers answering the question, if you did go to church, what would you like to have happen there? They never answer doctrine. Unless, of course, they're already converted. Donuts? It's hard to knock donuts, isn't it? Um, now, when I wrote my the book about the seeker movement, I, I reference a lot of statements that have been made on to that end. And so the kicker is this. If you look at the passage and what's going on, they were watching over the dogma of the apostles and elders. And it says they were strengthened and increasing in number. It's talking about believers who know are truly born of God. Does that make sense? So we got to define the church biblically. And the church consists of those who are being built on the foundation of of Christ the cornerstone and the apostles and prophets. And the only way to be one of those building stones, and this is all found in Ephesians chapter 2, is, to, is by faith, by grace through faith. And so that's how people are added to the church. They're being saved, they're being rescued, they're being born of God, they're coming to Christ. And what I've taught for 40 years is that believers who are the true building blocks of the church are born of God. They are born of the Spirit. And those who are born again are born again with a hunger for the truth of the Word of God. Why? Because Peter said we were born that way the pure seed, the word of God. And the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. The Holy Spirit regenerates. So if you want to nurture and cause strength and growth in the church, you will always teach the pure word of God. And in teaching that, you know for a fact that those who know Christ will grow. It's just like if you have a garden and you have the right conditions and you take care of the fertilizer and the water and sunshine, whatever it is needed, the right, the right kind of soil, you'll get a crop. We also know that if we teach the pure word of God to God's saints, they will grow. So we might grow in respect to salvation, as Peter said. So this had a beneficial effect on the churches spiritually and numerically. Now, this is totally counter 
to church growth theory. Because the issue about, because remember when those churches were formed, Paul often went first to the synagogue, to the Jew first and then the Gentiles. And so in these cities, there are Jewish and Gentile believers. Right? So here, in delivering these decrees, he's bringing a controversy. Do the, do the, the Jews could get upset about it, the Gentiles uh, may get up and eat. You don't know what will happen. But it's the truth, so therefore, benefits the church, yes. It's over here. Turn it on. There's a switch on that mic. Hello? Uh, so I was thinking on the church growth thing. One of the things that I noticed in Scripture is it says uh, you ought to be teachers by now, but you're still infants in the in the Word. And it's, and it's not saying because it says um, uh, those who are, um, let's see, how does it say, mature, having... Uh, tested what's true and learned it by, it says, by trial and error kind of a thing. And I'm not quoting it directly, but it, it does say that where it's like you, you've learned it by continuing to practice it. You've learned to decipher it. No, it says, it says tradition learned by rote. Not the same verse I was thinking of. It says they learned to decipher it because they um, tested it learning right from wrong. So it's like there's there's growth, but then there's also people that are not practicing it that are, you know, that's, that's also a hindrance. So we can know what to do, but then like the Israelites, we can not do it, and then we can keep wandering okay. in circles. Okay, um, but the Bible, uh, Eric, consistently says that failure to obey is caused by unbelief. The entire book of Hebrews says that. Why did they, why did they fall in the wilderness? Uh, because of disobedience, which is a sign of unbelief. If they believed God, Just then they would have obeyed. Unbelief causes disobedience. Faith causes obedience. Yeah. So, okay, that's where it starts. All right, good. Thank you. That's a good point. All right, now, can we go to two slides in one Sunday? <laughs> ah, you don't have this on your... I'll, I have to show you some of the pictures I got when I bought this DVD that has pictures and it goes through the entire book of Acts and every verse there are pictures from the Middle East that are pertinent okay so this one um, shows this word decree or dogma and let me read what I have in my notes and this was from um, way back when let me let me read what it says. The decrees, dogma, mentioned here, likely refer to the decisions made by the Jerusalem Council in chapter 15. The decision rendered there is the, introduced by the phrase, it seemed good to us, Acts 15.25. It should be observed that such a phrase indicates a formal decision, not a passing feeling. Eckhart J. Schnabel, I have that commentary, by the way, and I read it, explains, quote, the phrase translated as we decided, Edo Zen Hemin, is frequently used to introduce official decrees. 
Greek inscriptions contain over 3,000 examples of the verbal forms edo, ze, and edo, zen, mostly in formulas such as the decision of the council and the people, indicating the official decision of the magistrates and the people of a city. Unquote. The photograph shows a formal decision issued by the city and council and people of Athens concerning relations with the people of Chalchis. The artifact was photographed at the Athens Acropolis Museum. So they had the same terminology, official decision, dogma. So again and again, Acts fits in perfectly with the real world that they were living in and the sort of use of the Greek language that was common at the time. Now let's go to the next verse. The Holy Spirit guides preachers. They pass through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia in the spirit of Jesus did not permit them, and passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Now this is really going to be, I think, an interesting discussion. And it's certainly one that I've really had to contemplate over the decades that I've been in the ministry. How do you know where to go and when? We know what to teach, the Word of God. We know what to preach, the Gospel. But where and when? The question is, how does the work of the Holy Spirit, the providence of God, and our own personal decision-making interact in such a way that we get to the right place at the right time? Does that make sense? All right. I've had to wrestle with this. It, it comes up here. So why would the Holy Spirit forbid the apostles to speak the word of God in Asia. Because certainly the Holy Spirit wants the word to be preached. Now, we're just left kind of enticed by this by Luke, but he didn't tell us how they knew that. Whether it was a circumstance that happened and they couldn't go there, or they just didn't feel right about it, or they got together in prayer and decided, no, let's not go to Asia, let's go somewhere else. Now, what turns out later, that's exactly where they went, on the way back from Athens. So they end up going there, and Ephesus becomes a key part of what happens in the book of Acts, from Acts 20 on. They end up going to Ephesus, so actually before that. So we know that the Holy Spirit guides the gospel preachers and guides every believer says in Acts 1.8, let me read that. Did I, I didn't look it up. Somebody look up Acts 1.8 and read it to us. I could probably quote it to you. It says, you should, well, I'll just quote it to you. You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses, both in uh, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the world. Did I get that right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts. Yeah. Okay, I got it right. So you don't have to look it up. Or you already have. You found out that was correct. <laughs> so they know 
that they're supposed to go starting from Jerusalem outward to the uttermost parts of the world. Most commentators think that would be Rome, whose empire spread all over the world. We know Paul will hope to go to Spain. We don't know if he got there or not. So that they know, the moral will of God is revealed. Now, I have dealt, written articles about this. The moral will doesn't mean it necessarily has to do with personal morals. And it, sometimes it's called the revealed will. What the moral will of God has to do with is what we know that God says is right and true and good. That ought to be done. And what is forbidden. It's also called binding and loosing. That's what had happened in Jerusalem. They had to decide what the moral will of God was concerning Gentile converts. That's what was decided. It was a dogma. So then you look at those categories, what's allowed, what's commanded, what's forbidden, and so on. But there's also Christian liberty. So in the bigger scheme of things, we know it's God's will that we preach the gospel to all people, but we have liberty as we make decisions about where we're going to go. There's no prophet saying, go here, don't go there, at least now. And when Agabus said not to go, Paul went anyhow. Remember that? We'll get to it. It's in Acts 20. So how does that intersection work? Well, sometimes there were prophets that actually spoke during that time in the book of Acts. Let's turn with me to Acts 13, starting with verse 1. Acts 13, starting with verse 1. Where they did have clear direction. Now there were, there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers. Barnabas and Simeon, who's also called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, a man named who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, and the Holy Spirit said, Sit apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. When they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them away. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So they were told to send out the preachers, and that's what they did. And that's not something foreign to our day. We, uh, it's not like some prophet has a binding word saying, Yea, thus saith the Lord, thou must preach in Brainerd, but you can't go anywhere else. Because that would be an impingement on Christian liberty. But we can get together and pray and, and make a decision about where to go, where to meet, what technology to use to get the gospel out? Who's going to preach at what meeting and in what manner? I mean, there are decisions that we have to make and we're to make them prayerfully. But we do believe that the Holy Spirit guides us and gets us to the right place at the right time. My, I have 
hundreds of examples in my life of the Holy Spirit getting me to the right place at the right time in ways I could never, ever have predicted. Just absolutely would never predict it. And so I want to say this. The doctrine of providence, some have implied, especially people who believe in new revelations, they, they say if you teach the doctrine of providence, that's a cave-in, and it's unbelief, and you just gave up. And they mock people like me as saying, well, it'll all work out, as if I had no faith, because I teach Romans 8.28. But that's not the case whatsoever. The doctrine of providence is a comfort to every believer. And it means that God is at work in our lives and he does get us to the right place and he does use us when we get there. And I've seen that and I believe it with all my heart. I drove by that building that we were able to get sold in, I think, 2006. That whole area now is a war zone. The post office where we used to take, get our mail and take our mail, ransacked and looted and burned. The bank where we took the deposits, gone, destroyed. The hardware store where we got parts to build, work on the building, looted. Building is for sale. The, we were able to sell it for a good price that enabled us to come here and remodel this place back in 2006. When There's a lot of things that happened in the meantime. But I, was, I, I looked at that. I took Diane down there for a doctor's appointment just before the riots, and I looked at what was going on. They were boarding up as we were down there. There's no way that building is worth much of anything now. People would be scared. There was no parking, so where would you park? and feel safe walking to church. The, everything, graffiti and van, the, we fought that continually the whole time I was there. I was there taking care of that building for 25 years. The main part of my adult life, I was at that building. Always under attack. Under attack by the neighborhood, under attack by vandals, panhandlers, con artists, mean, nasty people that just hated us, drug dealers who were selling drugs to kids right on the church lawn. And when we called 911, nobody would come. That's starting to happen again, isn't it? So I've experienced what, it wasn't as bad as it is now, but in God's providence, we were still able to teach the flock, preach the gospel, care for people, do the weddings and funerals, and do everything we do, raise our kids during those 25 years. But we were able to get out. It just happened that way. So God's providence gets us to the right place at the right time. It's not a failure to trust God to get you to the right place at the right time. Yes. 
Go ahead. This will sound like a contradiction, but it's, I'm in full agreement with what you just said. So as, um, when I think of providence, one thing that I learned is God works out everything and he's in control. Even if I screw up, he's still going to use it and get me to where I need to be. But the other thing that God showed me in providence is if I, for instance, sometimes God's providence leads me to a scriptural verse like pray always without ceasing, and, I, and, I, and God wants me to act on that. So his providence will get me there, but then he wants me to act on it. So it's not that it's in my hands, you know, to always know what to say to God, and, and I'm like, oh, my word, what did I do wrong? Why am I in this situation at this time in my life? But sometimes God's providence leads us to action, and if we don't act, what I've learned is we'll, we, God's like, he says he's a father, and one thing fathers do is they discipline their children, they guide them, they, I mean, they says a lot of things about how God is our shepherd and that kind of thing, and so when God sh- says to pray, or there's other things that he tells us to do, and we don't do it, there really is real-life consequences, which is why I get on my knees and earnestly pray to God when I'm having a really hard day, because I've seen time after time where it's not that God won't hold my hand if I don't pray, but what he does is he answers my prayers. And when I say, God, please have mercy, a lot of times the day will be so easy that I'll, that I'll be scratching my head and thinking, no, that's nothing but God. Okay. All right. Um, generally, that's correct. I would be, I would caution you, though, not to be too self-conscious because I was in a group in the, before we bought that building where every time anything was wrong, it was because God was angry with us and they would call an all-night prayer meeting and fast and every crazy, stupid idea that ever came up happened at those meetings because <laughs> people would sit there with no sleep and they come up with these crazy ideas. That, and then we took it as God's marching orders that we couldn't go back on. We had to do it. So don't become self-conscious. But you're right. The Bible tells us to pray, so that's not wrong. The Bible tells us to seek him. But the kicker are these personal words from God. God told me I had to do this. God told me I had to go this place and that place. Now, that was in the 70s. A guy wrote a book. I just looked it up the other day because I wrote an article about it myself. You might want to jot this down. The book was written in 1980. Friesen, no, Friesen. Yeah, Friesen. F-R-E-I-S-E-N. I think it's Gary Friesen. Decision-making and the will of God. And then it was republished, I think, in 2004. Yeah, I'm going to talk about that in a future sermon, so I won't give it all away. But there was this idea that if you find that sweet spot, the perfect will of God, then nothing will go wrong. You know, every decision will, everything. In fact, I remember people used to say, it will all be downhill and with the wind. But Friesen wrote a great book debunking that idea in 1980, and it really helped me. I'll talk about it in a future sermon. But here we don't know what they did, but how they knew it was the Holy Spirit forbidding them, but they just did. Notice the parallelism. The Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus. Didn't he promise in John that he would send his Spirit? It's good for you that I go away. I'll send you another comforter. He'll be with you forever. And so... We see a parallel here. 
Let me read Luke 24, 49. Luke 24, 49. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So they were to wait to be receive the Spirit, which happened on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2, 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you both see and hear, which was the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So here we have really the Trinitarian understanding that Trinity is a biblical doctrine. Yes, brother. It's on? Yeah. Uh, I just actually going back on the, uh, the Holy Spirit, you know, Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. There's, we're going back a little bit here. The thing that uh, I've been in discussions with people and who think the Holy Spirit is talking to them, you know, and I just wanted to make sure we emphasize this. Uh, and I think the terms are uh, that in the book of Acts, we have a lot of things that are descriptive but not prescriptive. And so they described how the Holy Spirit spoke to the apostles to direct them, and we've gone over that just now. But that doesn't mean that we today are not to be guided by the Spirit of, by the, by the, uh, the Word of God, illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Uh, yeah, know. it actually carried it along yeah. by the Spirit. Yeah, yeah. I, but I, this I, idea, God, the Spirit just told me this. Right. I, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story about that. I'm I, I just go the, ahead. Last comment. I've run into people who will say, you know, I'm not going to go out and do evangelism because the Holy Spirit hasn't told me to do that. You know, and they, and they refer to Acts 13. Um, well, we just it. read that, yeah. Yeah, where, where we just read it, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Okay, well, the Holy Spirit has never told me that I should do evangelism, but the Word of God tells me that, <laughs> right? Okay. okay, I just wanted to make sure we got that, that, that we, we're not committing category uh, well, yeah, error. I, I agree. I, I have a sermon coming up where I'm going to talk about that. If we love Christ and we're called according to his purpose, and we have the Holy Spirit, that we go forward and make decisions and our decision-making is something the Holy Spirit is using. Because this blueprint, I think that's what uh, Friesen was talking about. The blueprint view is there's this perfect blueprint and if we ever could find it and get on with it, everything would go just perfectly. But we end up with something lesser because we don't know how to hear from God. I've heard, I, I've heard that kind of criticism. Well, your problem is you don't know how to hear from God. So hearing from God is a technique that mystics get, that people studying the Bible and praying and believing the truth, they don't have that ability. What's that? Oh, yeah, the Apple phone, not the Android. Yeah. Well, I got the wrong phone then. But see, the point is, God will allow us, if it's within our liberty, to make a certain decision. Like young people deciding whom to marry in the Lord. Is there, do you have to get a revelation 
or are you free to just bury in the Lord? I, I talk about that in an article I wrote. Yeah, say something right from there, that's fine. Uh, so one of the things I learned about the Holy Spirit is it says in the scripture, you know, decipher the spirits and you have to learn those kind of things. But one of the things that the Spirit says is, or that it says about the Spirit is, uh, the Spirit rejoices in the truth. And I know that, you know, we do rejoice when we read the Bible, but I've also read the Bible and you know it's sometimes you don't rejoice. But my point in saying that is sometimes when you read a scripture verse, you'll pray to God and you'll say, Lord, please give me wisdom on this or that. And then when you open the scripture up, it'll jump off the page to you. And so one of the things, that's one of the ways that the Holy Spirit does speak to us, is when we ask God, please teach me, and then we see in God's word, you know, sometimes we're kind of questioning in God's word, and we're like, does that really mean that? And the Spirit's not really teaching us, but there is a real spirit guidance when you can open the scripture, okay. and it'll be like... But the word of God is always means what it says, no matter what. Well, it doesn't change meanings ever. Okay? The meaning is determined by the author, not by the reader. The reader doesn't determine the meaning. The Holy Spirit inspired author does. And the Holy Spirit in us teaches us. The Word of God teaches us. The Holy Spirit enables us to be willing to believe it and submit to it. But the Holy Spirit isn't supplying some new meaning that was never there. Ever. That's how all the cults got started. All right. Um, there was a, let me give you an example. When I was in Bible college, I was in Assemblies of God Bible College, because that's who had led me to the Lord. And I had some good teachers, but we had to read the history of the Assemblies of God as part of our church history. And I was reading uh, in their, like, 1920, in their very early days, they were having this camp meeting. And somebody came along preaching Jesus only. Have you heard of Jesus only Pentecostalism? that denies the Trinity. Well, somebody came along preaching Jesus only. So the same as preacher that was well-respected because he was a good orator, said, well, we better find out if that's true or not. So he went into his tent and fasted and prayed all night long to decide if Jesus only was true or false. And he came out in the morning and said, God told me Jesus only is true. And this whole heresy got started Jesus only Pentecostalism because somebody spent all night praying and got a personal revelation and ended up denying the Trinity. And so by the time I got to Bible college, then they'd had another bout in the 1940s through a guy by the name of William Branham who was a firebrand preacher that people like to hear. And he came up with the doctrine of Latter-day Apostles and Prophets. And that we were going to do greater miracles than Jesus did if we were just pious enough. Well, Branham, in his version, and there was a question whether he believed in Trinity, pulled away a third of the Assemblies of God churches into his heretical movement. And 
This caused, that was in the 40s, William Branham. I wrote about that in an article. This caused that particular denomination to go to scholarship. They said, we can't keep going through this. It blows everything up. And so by the time I was saved in 1970, no, 71, 71, till 18, 1971, I was in Bible college by that fall. By that time, they had scholars, hermeneutics, the Greek, and we were studying Christian doctrine and getting grounded in the truth because they didn't want that to happen again. Sadly, something else happened, which was a seeker movement, but it's another story. But uh, I was there at the right time to be taught solid truth. And what they were telling us was the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. Stay in there. In fact, I've mentioned this. One of my teachers said, Bob, because I had these inclinations toward mysticism, and he said this, Bob, learn the Greek and stay in the Bible. He told me that. I said, okay. So I learned the Greek. And I started staying in the Bible five years later after I got burned by the charismatic movement. But at least I had something to come back to. And when I came back, I looked up that guy and I called him and I thanked him. I said, you told me the truth and you taught me the truth and I thank you for it. I apologize that I didn't listen at the time. Then I called another teacher. Thank you for teaching me the truth. You're a godly teacher and you made a lot of difference in my life. That was Reverend Snow. Then I called another teacher, Reverend Smith. And he had, he had actually warned me about the false teachings of Watchman Nee. But I spent years studying Watchman Nee, even though he warned me. And later when I found out what was wrong with it and the Colossian heresy and all that, I called him. He was a younger guy, so he was still alive. Some years later, I got a hold of him. And I said, thank you for pointing out the truth and for being patient with me and pointing me to where I needed to go, which was Colossians 2. And uh, God bless these guys because they told us the truth. And it's preserving us from going off on all these different directions. So I, I take that as I need to do the same. Luann. Oh, there you go. Um, I think something that's been so helpful in this church is it's taught us the importance of context because a verse that often gets used in times when things are real difficult like we're in right now is in Chronicles where it says, if my people will... Um, call upon the name of the Lord and seek my face, I will restore their land and all of that. And we know that that is a blessing for Israel and that it's not a sin. I mean, obviously we should call to repent and seek the Lord again, but that doesn't mean America is going to get that. Oh, so it's context. Thank you. I just keep hearing this. America is not Israel. Somebody always comes up with that. Please know this. Thank you, Luann. America is not Israel. God did not appear to the founding fathers of America and make a covenant. 
that was Abram in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and so on. But these people sell millions of books, they get on the radio, and they claim to be prophets from God, and they do things like every time a hurricane hits somewhere, it's proof that God's angry with America about whatever their pet peeve is. I was, I, it's just endless, it's endless. And they think that when that hurricane hit New Orleans, that's proof that God hates New Orleans because they're more evil than other cities. Even though Jesus said, don't believe that kind of thing, that the Galileans are worse sinners. They still do it. I heard this guy on the radio say, I feel like Jeremiah. I'm a prophet from God. I've been worrying about this. And America didn't repent. And sure enough, the hurricane hit a wicked city. But see, they want to be prophets and they want to have the status, but they don't want to submit to the discernment of prophets in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. Their prophecies have to come true and they have to have a correct doctrine. And this is also based on the lie that America is Israel. America is not Israel. Anybody here wants to dispute that Say so right now. I've had enough of this, yes. So one of the things that says in the New Testament is um, because they uh, did not see fit to acknowledge the truth, God turned them over to a depraved mind. Romans 1, yes. But not, uh, not to be done. And so we can see that God still turns nations over when they don't follow his word. But when Jesus said that, it's um, even Jesus that says he was a... Um, as though he carried our pain and he, he bore our sorrows and yet they esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. So when Jesus, when it says that of Jesus in Isaiah, when he was going through all these pains and this turmoil that he says he went through, and the scripture says he went through that, it says they looked at him and pointed and said, look, he's a man that God hates. He's a man that's gone through. Yeah, that was Isaiah 53, yeah. And so that's what he's addressing there when, when they talk about and they, and they say, look, this tower fell on him. It's just like them pointing at Jesus when he was But listen, nations are multiple nations, and they were ordained in Genesis, okay, to the table of nations. America is one of the goyim. It's a nation. And God deals with, Romans 1 is written to Gentiles. Was it last week I put up this slide? Give no offense to Jews, the Gentiles, or the Church of God. Did I put that up? Maybe I didn't. Maybe I just thought I did. Maybe I don't have it here. It's in 2 Corinthians 10.32. 2 Corinthians 10.32. There are three categories of people. Jews, Gentiles, and the Church of God. Romans 1 is written to Gentiles in general, not just Americans. America has Jews and Gentiles within it and the church of God. What I would say is we shouldn't think that we're more important than everybody else. 
because we're not. And Luann makes, I've heard that verse that Luann mentioned a thousand times as a Christian applied to America. And America is not my people called by my name. It was the Jews. Okay? So when it says my people called by my name, so we know that the scripture was written for us. He says, you know, the oxen that was plowing. He says, Jesus in the New Testament says, when he says, don't muzzle the ox, well, it's right Yeah, I understand that. Okay, but so here's what he's saying. He's saying, when he said that to the Jewish culture, and it's in the Ten it's in the commandments, the law of Moses, and he says, in the New Testament, he told us as believers, Right that for just them back then. No, you're you're you made a category here. That's a category here. That's what I'm saying, and then you can correct me. So what he said is, um, he said that he wrote that for us in the New Testament, and he said that was the oxen in order to take care of preachers. He described the meaning of it was that the principle still stands strong. He says the idea is when you're working hard, you should take of what you're working for. It's True. It's the principle, and so he applies it to the New Testament. And same way when he says that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, and then I will hear from heaven, heal their land, and forgive their sins, he's still saying the principle applies to us. He's saying if my people who in that context are Israel will turn from their wicked ways and like a church, if we come together, God will bless us as a church. And it's the same way as a nation. What's, okay, hold on, hold on. You made a huge jump. What's our land? What land is promised to us? No, what's the land? Israel. Yeah, no, you make a jump. That's not the same thing as the oxen one. The oxen is a lesser to greater argument. The oxen one was, if God cares about oxen, he cares about people who are creating the image of God. That passage was given directly to Israel who had a land. And I've heard that verse used over and over again to blame Christians for whatever's going wrong in America. Because these preachers think Christians don't have enough guilt, so I'm going to give them some more. They're burning down your city, you're a wicked Christian. They're, they're doing gay marriage, you're a wicked Christian. They're robbing, they're doing socialism, they're doing Marxism, evil on all sides, you're a wicked Christian. And if you would just become good Christians and do everything you're supposed to, none of this would happen. I don't, are you saying that, Eric? Are you saying that? Um, if this people, so as, if we, the church, uh, begin to turn and seek God with all of our each of us know that sometimes we're not fully... Yeah, but what, if, what would happen if we did that? Well, then we get blessings. Who would get the blessing? If you draw near me, I'll draw near you. And one of the things is, God starts with us. He starts with us. He says, I'll bless you. Okay. One of the other things is, when we get blessed and we start being filled with God, He even pours out on others. So it's our fault that America's in bad shape? I didn't say that, but it's. Okay, then the passage doesn't apply. We have responsibilities in our lives and they do affect other people. Well, don't become so self conscious that it becomes crippling. Okay. Now, um, see, we had all that in the 70s, and it was endless. I want to tell a story. Somebody brought it up here. When I was a charismatic in the 70s, and we were hearing from God, or I wanted to hear from God, this couple showed up at this ministry center 
was a part of. And they showed up with a car and a family. And they said, we're here because the Holy Spirit told us to come here. So we welcomed them and gave them a meal. And they said, well, the Holy Spirit told us to be here. And we said, well, we're heading up to Zion Harbor, which was on Leech Lake. I used to preach there. And we got a camp up there, and we're heading up there. Okay, the Holy Spirit tells us to follow you. So we decided to have one of the people in our party join that family in case they got lost. And this is before cell phones. <laughs> yeah. So we're going up north. They're following us. And we pulled over for a, a restaurant stop. And the lady who was in their car jumped out of the our, that we knew, jumped out of the car, ran over to ours, and said, I'm not getting back in that car. These people are crazy. They're totally nuts. They're saying, no, the Holy Spirit's not telling us to go. Oh, no, the Holy Spirit's telling us to go. And they were going around the country, supposedly following the Spirit, but the Spirit was so double-minded that he couldn't decide whether they should go to Zion Arbor or not. And they attributed every crazy idea they had to the Holy Spirit. And she said, let me out of that car. I will not get back in there. Imagine those poor kids. Imagine the instability of these poor kids whose parents had a hotline to heaven and the Spirit told them everything, including dictating turn by turn by turn where they drive. So this is not that. The Holy Spirit closed the door, however he did, we don't know, and they went somewhere else. So let me show you. This is Ephesus, by the way. Isn't it amazing what they could do back then? Create an amphitheater where all these people could hear. But that's not where they went. I don't know if you can see that, but at the top is Bithynia. To the right is Galatia. To the, to the south is Phrygia. Then it says Asia. That's where they didn't go. But where they did go, Mysia, which would be, I don't have a, up there toward the sea, upper left, and then over to Troas, which is by the sea. Let me cite the data that came with this particular slide. Instead of traveling directly west from Pisidian Antioch to the cities shown on the previous slides, Paul obeyed the Holy Spirit and took a more northern route toward the region known as Mysia. And tells where the map came. So there's Mysia, and then they end up in Troas. My point is this, dear saints. Don't beat yourself up thinking, I didn't get enough personal revelations. Trust God. Make wise decisions by his grace. And if a decision is within your Christian liberty, God's not going to punish you for making a decision within your Christian liberty. If something is sin, we know not to do it. And you don't lose anything. 
I've written 150 theological articles, all just based on a need. Somebody emails me, somebody's saying this and this and this, and it doesn't make sense. I can't figure it out. Or it's being taught in our church. So I look into it. Oh boy, that's hurting people. So I write an article. Is that a revelation from God? No, it's just making a decision. But it turned out to benefit a whole lot of people. You see how that works? Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done and for the example of the apostles who obeyed you and went and preached the word where they could, when they could, anointed by the Spirit. And may we do the same. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.